Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Lisa Decker. She's a certified divorce financial analyst and a real estate collaboration specialist in divorce. And she devotes herself in divorce financial planning services to clients across the country with coaching, consulting, and full analysis options done on a flat fee basis. In her practice, she's seen it all, the good, the bad, the unfortunate, the ugly, and all in divorce situations. Lisa strives to help her clients find smarter solutions for their family finances and their future. Lisa Decker, welcome to Divorce Dialogues. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm honored to be here. And we're here talking today about gray divorce and also the costs of divorce. So let's start with the gray divorce topic. What does that mean? And what are the consequences of gray divorce? Gray divorce is a term that was put together by two sociologists from Bowling Green University in a study they did in conjunction with the National Center for Family and Marriage Research, where they analyzed data from over 20 years, going back 20 years, and they found some very interesting trends when it comes to folks over the age of 50. You know, while divorce rates are actually trending down for most age groups, and that's partly because younger generations are cohabitating, in many cases they are not getting married at all, but when it comes to people over the age of 50, they tend to have been in long-term marriages, which they classified as somewhere between 20 to 40 years, and they found that this segment of the population is the largest and fastest growing group that is getting divorced. And there's a lot of reasons behind that, but older couples who have been married for a long time, some folks call them silver or diamond splitters. You know, it, it really refers to the color of their hair by the time they've gotten to that age, and that's why we're talking about gray divorce. But it's really been happening over the last 20 years, and this research showed that the overall rate in the United States has declined, but for people over the age of 50, it's on the rise. And and some of those reasons are that they've grown apart because their kids are now grown and gone and, you know, things aren't the same. Many my clients say, you know, we stayed together for the sake of the kids and now they're off to college and having their own lives and we're not the same people anymore. And then the usual cases that people get divorced for, infidelity. I find financial infidelity is another big reason that people in this age group come to me. There's a shift in the way that the money has been handled in some cases. Typically, and I'm talking about financial infidelity here, their money and spending habits. Sometimes we see spouses who are taking more risks with the investments uh, because they feel they're getting older and they want to try and catch up. Sometimes they are, uh, they've gotten into some gambling issues or they're, they're just doing some things that they're not involving their spouse in. And I've, I've had a lot of cases with financial infidelity for this age group over the years. There's also, you know, health issues, addictions, uh, people are living longer and many times my gray divorce clients, which make up about 90% of my practice, they just say, you know, I've given my time to this marriage, but I want to spend the rest of my years 
doing what feels right for me. I'm no longer happy and I'm ready to move on. And then sometimes, you know, one spouse will continue to get older and, and with the aches and the pains and the other one's more physically active and not happy that the spouse isn't getting up off the couch to do something about that. So, you know, there's a variety of reasons that this happens for this age group, but the consequences can be tremendous. Physically, we know that their health declines for folks in this age group. You know, they ha- we see a higher level of depression than for those whose spouse have died, for instance. And there's higher blood pressure, and men especially gain more weight over time. So it does have physical consequences, but on the financial side, it's even more devastating. Consequences we see here is that for many folks in this age group, and you you probably see this in your practice as well, but this is not their first marriage. So each time they divorce, they lose half of the marital state every time this happens. And we see, you know, second and even third divorces. So they keep splitting the pot every time they go along here. They're closer to retirement. So they don't have the uh, long time frame to recover where you do when you're younger. And we see that women especially are affected improportionately because their standard of living plunges as much as 45%. Because, you know, let's face it, many women spent their prime working years as stay-at-home moms, and now they're facing a divorce and they have to go out and re-enter the workforce, and they may not have gone to college, or if they have, it was so long ago that their skills are not appropriate in today's market, and they have to get caught up, and they're competing with a younger workforce, so they don't really have the time to catch up. The poverty rates, interestingly and sadly, for gray divorced women 63 and older is nearly 27%. And compared with gray divorced men, they are just at over 11%, where gray divorced couples are at about 3% overall. So you can see there's a very big disproportion there. So you mean gray couples, gray intact couples are at 3%. Well, listen, Lisa Decker, you said a lot there, so I just want to see if we can sort some of that out and talk a little bit more in detail about it. So first of all, you use this phrase, financial infidelity. And you talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about what that is, but I think we should, for the listeners, just describe a little bit about that because the the infidelity, of course, is usually seen to be, you know, having an affair, an adulterous relationship or something like that. But I think a lot of people do feel betrayed by their spouse on the finances in one way or the other, you know, overspending or gambling or an addiction or, or something that just feels like, listen, I didn't agree to that. And so what kind of behavior rises to the level of actual financial infidelity? Oh, that's a great question. Well, some of the things that I have personally been involved with are inappropriate investments. I had one couple that came to me because the husband had gotten involved in like a pyramid scheme. And each time they kept coming back for more money, he didn't want to lose the money that he already put in. And by the time he shared with his wife that he had gotten caught up with this, he had invested $150,000 and lost all of it. She felt highly betrayed because he had never consulted her about investing this money in this type of, you know, scheme, let's call it, what he didn't see it that way when he first went into it. But had he have come to her and said, look, this is something I think would be something I'm looking at that might be appropriate to help us bring in some more money. Uh, We're getting close to retirement. What do you think? You know, it would have been a joint decision one way or the other, yes or no. 
But because he did this and then he realized he was getting in deeper and kept trying to pull himself out of it until he finally got to the point where he realized he had been scammed, you know, she felt very violated. And they did end up divorcing. They're still friends, but she wanted all of their financials and everything else separated so that she could keep control and make sure that she wasn't left in poverty if her husband decided to make more of these type of decisions. Other times, you know, we see people with uh, online gambling addictions, um, they're spending money frivolously, and they're going into credit card debt to pay that. Uh, I would say also I've seen spouses take out a home equity line and not inform the other spouse and then use that money for whatever purposes they want until they realize they can't pay it back. And uh, I was just talking to someone yesterday who's recently divorced, and um, she was sharing that her husband, a CPA, had not been paying taxes for many years. And when she finally realized that there was something going on that he was not taking care of the financials properly, she decided to file for divorce, only to find out that the IRS had a $1.4 million lien on their family home. So that really wreaked havoc on things, fortunately. He had filed separate returns, so she wasn't held to that, but it did affect their overall marital estate. So those are just some of the things. When you are making decisions that affect the family unit without getting the buy-in or the knowledge of your spouse, well, that's financial infidelity. You're doing things secretly that can affect both people. Your description and your examples are pretty shocking. You, you know, pretty much anybody would be like, wait, what? You know, and, and, and feel like that is really kind of a shocking and egregious behavior. But that said, a lot of people disagree with how their spouse spends money or saves it or doesn't spend it. It's an issue of tension in many, in many couples. And, and I think a lot of that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of financial infidelity, even if the couple doesn't necessarily agree on what the appropriate saving would be or what the appropriate budget is. Do you think that that's true or do you see it differently? Well, I think every case would have to be looked at on its own merits. But what I think sets the financial infidelity apart is this level of secrecy where the other spouse is not involved. You know, there can be conflicts, like you said, on how people save or spend, but they know about it. This is different in that bills are being hidden, computers are being locked up, so the spouse has no idea what's going on. That's where the the level rises to to the financial infidelity in, in the cases that I see. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction because sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm not spending the money on myself. I'm spending it on the children, but they're being, whatever it is, they're being forthcoming. This is the money I'm spending. We might argue about it, but I'm not lying to you. It's when there's deceit that there's an, a really an issue of infidelity on the financials. Yes. Great. I would agree with that. Absolutely. So, and I also heard you say that uh, one of the problems with gray divorce, meaning divorce that comes later in life, is that there's less of a, an ability to recover from it because there's less working life left. And therefore, exactly. there's a kind of like the impact of the divorce, the financial impact of the divorce is greater on later years. Is that right? 
Yes and no. You know, we also see that many times the gray divorce couples have more assets because they have had time to accumulate them. And I see that more so when this is their the first divorce versus the second or third time around. So they may have more assets in a gray divorce situation. But in many cases, we are seeing that it does affect them much greater, as you said, because they do not have the same time frame. You know, when you are 10 or five years out from retirement, you just don't have the time to recover, especially if the market takes a beating or if unemployment in a situation like now or people getting divorced, a wife might have to go back to work who has not worked and you're in a situation where there's no work. I mean, it can take a, a tremendous toll. Sure, that's exactly right. Well, I think that the statistics on second and third marriages are worse than the statistics on first marriages, right? And I think that often that's because people don't change. They create the same relationship again, the same problems. They don't address their own issues that contributed to a divorce, and they just look to recreate a, a happily married situation. And there are adult children or older children or other children involved, and that can be really complicated. And the stresses on a second and third marriage are just, I think, greater right out of the box than they are in a first marriage. What do you think? I would have to agree on everything that you just said there. Absolutely. If you don't do your own work to find out, like you said, what did I contribute to this? If you're just looking for someone else to come in and be your partner, but you haven't figured out what responsibility did I have in the marriage dissolving? And, you know, even if it was just that I allowed someone to do that to me, that I I wasn't involved enough to know what was going on, that I, you know, even if you were the victim, and I hate that word, but, you know, in many cases a person is victimized, you had a responsibility to get involved, to know things, to speak up. So if you don't change that way, that habit of being, you're just going to repeat that again and again. I'm Catherine Miller. You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM in Westchester County, New York, every other Wednesday from 5 to 530. We're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Lisa Decker about gray divorce. And Lisa, and I want to make sure that people have an opportunity to get in touch with you or get information from you if they want. So how can they do that? Well, I appreciate that. I can be found at divorcemoneymatters, with an S, dot com, or divorcetownusa.com. All right. That's great. You know, and another thing that I think can lead to financial problems is is basically spending too much money in your divorce. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I think that it's a good idea to think about how you're allocating your resources towards professionals and other divorce fees. But how can people, well, what are some costly divorce mistakes and how can people avoid them? Well, I think some of the things going into divorce is making sure that you have picked the right path for you. And I was uh, looking over your website, and I love that you help people to have a more civilized and respectful divorce with dignity, because that is possible. But if you are not aware that there are other options, like collaborative, cooperative, mediation, and you just take the word of your best friend's neighbor's sister and go visit an attorney that you've been given a name of, not understanding uh, what you're stepping into Uh, what the process looks like, how divorce works, 
how legal aspects happen. You know, if you don't really know what you're getting into and you just put your faith in the first attorney that you go and talk with, put a retainer up and let them run with it, you're going to spend a shocking amount of money in it. And um, I've seen that time and time again. People have come to me after they've spent ten, twenty, thirty thousand each, and they are no further than when they started. And they say, we want to put a hold on things. Can you act as a financial neutral and help us sort some of these things out? And then we may work with a mediator or we may work with both attorneys to come back and say, okay, here's where we are. We've either figured out the financials and we've divided them in a way that is acceptable to both parties, or we've got this all done, but we're still stuck on this and this, and there's less things to argue about, and attorneys can come in and help with that or the mediator. And it's the parties taking personal responsibility and getting involved. I like to tell people that whether it's your health or your wealth, be a proactive partner, not a passive participant. Yeah, you know, I think that when it comes to divorce, I think that divorce is a people problem with legal consequences rather than a legal problem. And if they turn it over to lawyers who make it, who think in terms of legal problems, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be really focused on the people involved and their family, their finances, what makes sense to them. And they can be supported through the transition in a way that makes the most sense to them. I think that's the way really to think about how to allocate your resources. And it absolutely makes sense to spend money on that rather than on, I don't know, formal discovery procedures that really might not get you anywhere. What do you think about that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. But you've got to have both spouses on board with that because you're not going to get the information that you need in order to make viable decisions, informed decisions. So, you know, when I'm working as a financial neutral at CDFA, I cannot compel documents. So both parties in a situation where they're working in a more mediated, collaborative setting have to agree that they're going to abide by the rules that are all the parties set and trust has to be a factor. If you don't have that involved, then you may need a stronger advocate. You may have to go a different path. But interestingly, here in Georgia, we have a new process that's come about called the Amicable Divorce Solution. And there's an attorney who has created a way for parties to go through the process with less of the court involvement and all of that, but still being able to get discovery if needed, if the parties aren't coming to the table with it. So, you know, when you go through a traditional divorce, I have seen so many games played where, for instance, you know, a discovery request is sent out and I just had a client call about this recently. They had been waiting six months for the discovery documents to be presented. They still were not. Mediation was scheduled. She had no idea going into this what was in the marital pot, what was going to be a part of anything. And then the night before mediation, they did a data dump and delivered boxes and boxes, not giving them time to assess that. And, you know, sometimes they will hold off and keep running up the legal fees and the and the continuances and all of that to run the other party out of money so you can't fight anymore, so you have to take things. So, you know, those kinds of cases need special care. But for most people, if you want to keep the money in your family unit instead of, you know, the attorney's family unit or the CDFA's family unit, you need to work together because this is your life. You have to be the CEO of it and you have to to work together so that you keep that money as a part of your marital estate to divide among each other and your children. And so I just want Lisa Decker to, to circle what you just said. You have to be the CEO of your own life. 
I think that's really wise advice. And I think it's so sometimes hard because sometimes people just don't know what to do. And it can seem just easier to hand it over to somebody else. So why shouldn't they do that? Again, going back to being a proactive partner, not a passive participant, you know, clients sometimes come to me and say that, here, here's everything, just figure it out. And in our practice, we do that. But first, we engage them. We have them put their information into the divorce software. We have them give us every statement for everything that's entered in the software. And we could do that for them. But by engaging them, by touching each statement and putting that information into the software, they begin to take notice of what they own, what they owe, what may be owed to them. And they start being engaged in the process and therefore start understanding these concepts. And when we're able to sit down and go through our analysis and what we're recommending and, you know, what changes they might want to see, they're now a proactive partner. They're no longer a passive participant because they have physically touched those things. And that is so important. You're going to be left with those financials after the fact. Nobody's going to hold your hand after the fact and say, this is how much your budget is, or this is the type of investments you have, and you need to do something with them, and they need to be moved into new accounts. Now, you know, there may be people out there, but you're going to pay more for it, and if you're not watching the people who are watching your money, then you're setting yourself up for disaster as well. You really need to know about these things, and, you know, I have people come to me in their 60s and 70s that never were a part of any of this, and it's very scary, and understandably so. Yeah have to have someone to work with you that will sit down and take the time to explain the differences in types of assets that you have, how they work, how you can withdraw them, the tax complications of them, and make informed decisions. And so, Lisa Decker, for people thinking about divorce or just at the beginning of the process, what do you think they should do first and what's your best advice for them? Well, the best time to start is even before you file divorce. If you know that it's coming or you're contemplating it, start gathering the documents that affect your life that are a part of your family unit. Anything that has to do with the, your assets, like your home, your your vehicles, your bank accounts, your brokerage accounts, retirement funds, uh, credit cards, uh, student loans, car loans, anything that affects you and gather that information. And by the way, I have a, um, a list of those items at divorcemoneymatters.com. It's a free gift. People can take that there. But you want to to start making copies of those and putting them in a safe place, whether you put them in the cloud, whether you put them on a flash drive, whether you do both. Because when the divorce starts, if it turns ugly, which it sometimes does, documents have a way of disappearing. So, you know, just getting everything gathered so that then when you do start, you have the documents to give to the partners that you're going to work with. And I do recommend that you have a minimum of an attorney, a divorce financial planner, somebody who is well-versed in divorce matters, uh, not just regular financial planning, and someone who can help you with the emotional support like a therapist and a coach. Get the team, the solid team in place, and then you can have someone sort through all those matters and start bringing in other professionals that you might need, like a mortgage professional to pre-qualify you, a realtor to see what the house is worth, an insurance person to you know, find out if your spouse can qualify for life insurance to back up what you may be owed in alimony or child support. So there's multi-levels of all of this. And at DivorcetownUSA.com, I have a roadmap there that talks about all the team members that you meet or might need. 
And, you know, looking at the different options, again, in that roadmap, I talk about do you want to start at Peaceful Place and Savings Lane or do you want to start at Bigger Bucks Boulevard and Duke It Out Drive? Because where you start is likely where you'll end. That's really great advice. And what about someone who thinks that maybe there is some financial infidelity? Where should they start looking for that information? Well, again, the gathering of those documents is going to be vitally important because many times uh, things are transferred out of accounts. So you can see that in some of the bank statements or the brokerage statements. And, and that would give a forensic accountant the ability to start doing tracing and seeing if they can follow the path of the money. Uh, that gets very expensive very quickly. So you want to give them as much information as you can up front. Um, tax returns also can yield information about accounts that may be out there that you haven't been given information about. Um, we like to look at if we're dealing with a situation like that loan application, because typically when people are applying for loans, they are going to put down every single asset that they own because they want to get that loan. And if that, we have found assets that way as well. So, um, there are a variety of means, but with everything in life, the earlier and the more proactive you are, the better outcome you're going to see. All right. That's great. We're out of time. Lisa Deckard, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogue. Thank you. I appreciate it so much.